Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we we thank you and we praise you this morning that we can worship you. We have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, we ask and pray that you would bless this time in your word, that you would move us to see the great assurance that we have of this inheritance that you have given to us in heaven. God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith through the Spirit today. Lord God, we ask and pray that it would all result in praise and glory to you. We ask and pray this now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I also want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. It is good to count our blessings, isn't it? Uh, I thought that what we could do this morning is just take a couple minutes and popcorn some reasons that we are thankful to God. Can we do that? Can we get our participation hats on? Kids, you also can participate. Why are you thankful? Let's, let's shout them out. Salvation, I heard. Nice and loud. Keep them loud so I can hear. Grace and provision. Awesome. What else? For family, amen? For warm houses, right? On a snowy day. Praise Jesus. Why else are you thankful? For God's faithfulness. Amen. What else? Keep them coming. A couple more. For the saints of Christ. For each other. For one another. Yeah, for God's church. Amen. What else? I, heard, I thought I heard something over here. Freedom. Yeah, amen. We ought to thank God for our freedom. Amen. You know, Thanksgiving, um, we could go on and we ought to go on um, listing the ways that we are thankful. Thanksgiving as as a holiday has never really been about the good things that we have, but about the giver of those things, about God, about his providence, about how he has blessed us. Everything that you have is a gift from God, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The Bible says, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything that you have is a gift from God. The Bible says that that he gives us life and breath and everything, Acts 17, 25. Now today, we're going to continue to count our blessings, our spiritual blessings in Christ so turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. That's our text for today. And we've, we've been working our way through Paul's doxology where he praises God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And he's been listing these blessings. We've looked at several of them. We've seen uh, God's election choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world And connected to that, our adoption, God bringing us into his family so that God is our father with all the blessings that that entails. Last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about our redemption, the forgiveness of sins that we have through Jesus Christ, his freedom from sin. And the message for us today is this, praise God for sealing you with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your glorious inheritance. Praise God for sealing you with the Spirit who is the guarantee of your glorious inheritance. 
That's the message for us today. You will make it to the end and you will acquire possession of your inheritance. How do you know? Because God determined it and because the spirit who seals you guarantees it. And that assurance gives us reason to praise God. So we're going to see two reasons to praise God today. The first is that we've obtained an inheritance by God's will. And the second is that the Spirit seals and guarantees our inheritance until we get it in full. So first, you have obtained an inheritance in Christ according to God's will. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. In him, that's Jesus, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We've obtained this blessing of an inheritance because God predestined us to have it. This is connected to what we saw Two weeks ago in verse five, God predestined us for adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will, verse five. And as God's children, we are heirs, Romans 8, 17. And that implies that we have an inheritance, which we obtain in the same way that we did our adoption, having been predestined according to the purpose of God's will. We've obtained an inheritance because God determined it, not because we deserved it, not because God looked ahead and saw faith in us. What could God foresee in us but pollution and rebellion, as the Puritan Thomas Watson put it? If we are to be saved, it is according to God's purpose. Now, God's sovereignty is a central theme that runs through this whole doxology. We see it in verses 5, verse 9, and again in verse 11. Now, in verse 5, the emphasis was on the pleasure, the good pleasure of God's will. But here in verse 11, the focus is on the all-encompassing sovereignty of God. God works all things, not some things, but all things according to the counsel of his will. No event occurs outside of God's providence. We see this all over in scripture. God governs fire, hail, snow, wind, lightning, and the sun. God governs frogs, gnats, flies, locusts, quail, fish, worms, sparrows, grass, the harvest, and famine. God governs blindness, deafness, paralysis, fever, disease, God governs prison doors and travel plans and the hearts of kings and the affairs of nations. God determined your birth time and birthplace and the number of days that you would live. In him, you live and move and have your being. Every breath is a gift of grace. Every heartbeat is undeserved. God governs our talents, opportunities, successes, and failures. Indeed, Everything. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is meant to be a comfort and assurance that causes us to praise God. As God said through Isaiah, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46.10. 
And since God has purpose to save, God has purpose to give you this inheritance, then he will do so. As Job declared, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42, 2. God's sovereignty is a sweet and comforting truth because it means that there is no evil, no force, no person that can thwart the plans of God. We can be confident that evil will not triumph and God's plans for his people, for each one of his people, will be fulfilled. This is the foundation of the promise in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You see, without God's sovereignty, we can never really know this is true. If the devil or wicked men or even ourselves could thwart God's plans, then this promise would be empty. If God were not sovereign over all things, then Satan or sickness or circumstances or evil men might have the the final word in your life. And that is not good news. See, if we try to rescue God from his sovereignty over hardship and suffering, then we remove the promise that we know he works in all things for our good. No promise of God is certain unless God is sovereign. Now, does that mean that our choices are not real or that our actions have no impact? No, not at all. Our actions do have real impact. Someone might ask, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why should we bother preaching the gospel at all? And the answer is that God, in his sovereignty, chooses to work through means to accomplish his will. We even see this in our text today. Verse 13 says, you were sealed when you heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. But someone had to preach. Romans 10, verse 14. How are they going to hear unless someone is preaching? God uses the preaching of the gospel to call people to faith in Christ for salvation. God uses means to accomplish his plans. So rather than discouraging evangelism, God's election encourages it. Paul says this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul is not arguing here that since God has chosen them, then nothing needs to be done. Rather, he, he saw that much had to be done because God uses means to accomplish his purpose. God's election encouraged Paul to preach the gospel even if it meant suffering for it. Why? Because he knew that some would believe and be saved. It's like someone offering to take you fishing and saying, I guarantee that you're going to catch some fish. I'd be like, let's go. It's only because God is sovereign, because of God's sovereign grace that evangelism has any hope of success or that there is any possibility of faith. And since God works through means, we are still responsible to act, to pray, to share the gospel, to disciple our kids, and so on and so on. We would be wrong to conclude, God is sovereign, so I don't need to pray. Or, God is sovereign, so I don't need to share the gospel. No, God uses preaching. God uses prayer. And so we read, you do not have because you do not ask, James 4, 2. The implication is, is if you had asked, you would have it. 
Preaching and prayer are just two examples of how God uses means to accomplish his will. Therefore, our action or our lack of action has a real impact. Now, as we said two weeks ago, how God's sovereignty and how human responsibility work together is a mystery that we cannot fully understand. But in verse 11, Paul is telling us that God determined that those who are in Christ obtain an inheritance. That's his plan. And since no one can stop God from accomplishing what he determines to do, this is your comfort and your assurance. Now, what can we say about our inheritance? Well, first, what is an inheritance? It's something that you receive as an heir. So let's say that your parents, um, they leave you their wealth and their property. Whatever your parents leave you, big or small, that is your inheritance. Now, you can leave an inheritance to anybody, but it usually is, it goes to a child. I read a story this week about a, a teenager who received an inheritance from his grandfather. His grandpa gave him 80 acres of farmland and a 36-acre island. How cool is that? Like, here's my island. That is totally awesome. But there's more, because the will talked about all this jewelry and these gems that were stored in the thermos, and nobody could find Grandpa's thermos. And then as they were reminiscing, they remembered how Grandpa always talked about Treasure Island. And they realized he hid it on the island. And so they went on a treasure hunt. That is a super fun way to pass on an inheritance, no? Now, if you want to do that, all you need to do is purchase an island. I, this is a 36-acre island right here, and you can have it. It's in the Bahamas for just $3.75 million. That can be yours, and you can hide your inheritance there. Uh, actually, that's not good because now we all know about it. Now, there might be some advantages to having some wealthy parents in this life but you are a child of the Most High God, the King of Kings, and that is far greater. And we don't have to work for our inheritance. He gives it to us as a gift, and it is a glorious inheritance. Well, what can we say about it? Well, nobody can fully describe the riches of our inheritance in heaven, this glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8.18, even if we had the words, I think our minds are too limited to comprehend it at this point. So all that we're going to say about it today is going to pale in comparison to the reality, but still God has told us some things about it so that we have some idea of what it's going to be like. It's often actually described by the absence of things, by the absence of bad things. The Bible says that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, 1 Peter 1.5. We're told there will be no tears, no death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, Revelation 21, 3 through 4. There'll be nothing unclean or detestable or false, Revelation 21, 27. This means there's gonna be no corruption, no decay, no weariness, no devil, no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no death. And even that description is amazing and should excite us for our inheritance because none of the things that trouble us here will be there. 
But I want us to consider some of the sweet blessings of our inheritance as well. And here I'm indebted to J.C. Ryle. Consider how knowledge is pleasing to us. We will have it perfectly in glory, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Consider how holiness is pleasing to us. We feel the weight of our sin in our daily lives, but we've also tasted the joys of obedience, of pleasing God. We will have that perfectly in glory, for he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul's going to go on in this letter and say how he, he, he's going to present us to himself in the splendor of holiness without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Ephesians 5.27. Imagine the joy, the glory of being free from sin, from its presence. Consider how rest is pleasing to us. We will have perfect rest in glory. We're tired of always watching and warring with the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we reach glory, our warfare will be over. All of our enemies defeated. We are tired of being weak and weary with sickness and suffering, our bodies wearing out, tired of the cares of this world. When we reach glory, we will have perfect peace and rest on all sides, a perfect glorified body that will never wear out. Consider how singing God's praise is pleasing to us. It's good and fitting, Psalm 147, 1. When we reach glory, we will worship perfectly, joining the hallelujah chorus with the myriads of saints rejoicing and giving glory to God for our salvation, Revelation 5, 11 and following. Consider how fellowship with believers is pleasing to us. We'll have it perfectly in glory. In heaven, you will get to meet and have fellowship with all the saints of history that you have read about and admired and followed with the apostles and the prophets, the martyrs, the missionaries, the pastors, the reformers, all of the heroes of the, of the faith that you know about and the ones that you don't know about. And on top of all of this, you will have fellowship with all of your loved ones who have gone before you into glory. And they will be shining in glory, more alive than you have ever seen them before. And that fellowship will never be cut off because in, in glory, there is no longer a farewell. But consider the sweet fellowship, the, the greatest joy that you have, the fellowship with Jesus Christ. You will have it perfectly in glory. More important than the beauty of heaven and the fellowship of the saints and our freedom from suffering and our reigning with Christ, as awesome as those things are gonna be, more important than all of that is the fellowship that we are gonna have with God himself. That is what makes heaven, heaven. We'll be home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11, with nothing to hinder your enjoyment of Christ. Imagine seeing Jesus Christ face to face. You will know the fulfillment of all that you have ever longed for deep down in your soul and you will be satisfied. Peter says, though you do not now see him, that's Jesus, you love him and you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8, if that's supposed to be true of us now, 
then what's it going to be like in heaven? When we have the joy and the peace and the love of God poured out into our hearts. And all of this description falls utterly short of the reality. Now, what difference does that make today? We have that tomorrow. We have that future. What difference does it make today? Well, we can rejoice now in this great hope. Our inheritance is assured because God has planned it. He's determined it. And that sure hope gives us patience and courage in all the trials of this life. So we do not lose heart. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are eternal, he who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 6. You know, there is peace and courage in the face of death for the Christian because it is the path to our immortal life. We see that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. What's more, there is no need for you to envy the success of the wicked. For you are truly rich, Psalm 73, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. If you're God's child through faith, then rejoice. Rejoice in your inheritance. Give thanks and praise to God for this blessing. Let the hope of glory shape how you live today, this life. You see, such hope frees us. It frees us from selfishness and greed. It frees us and empowers us to serve other people sacrificially. Such hope is a ballast of assurance that enables us to endure the storms of life. Such hope makes us want to do everything that we can to bring as many people with us to glory as possible. Or at least it ought to. So how do you become a child of God? By faith, that's the answer. We become sons of God when we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you want to become a child of God with this glorious inheritance, then confess your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and trust in him to save you from your sins. That is the moment that you are sealed with the Spirit. And that leads us to our second reason to praise God. You're sealed with the Spirit, who's the guarantee of your inheritance. Now, one question that you might have as you listen to this this morning is, how do I know that I have such a glorious inheritance? How do I know that this is for me? Is there any guarantee? Yes, the Holy Spirit is your guarantee from God. You see, every part of this doxology is designed to address doubts that we might have about our salvation and to give us assurance of our salvation. So do you doubt your inheritance? In this final section, God says, when you believed in Christ Jesus, you were sealed with the Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. God gives us the Spirit as the promise of salvation. So look with me at verses 13 and 14. In Him, again, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So when you heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Spirit. What is the gospel? 
The gospel is good news. And here it's described as the gospel of your salvation. It's news of salvation. Salvation from what? From your sin. Sin against a holy God and God's wrath as a just punishment against your sin. The Bible says unbelievers are going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Hell is going to be every bit as awful as heaven is going to be amazing. But God sent Jesus to take that punishment for your sin. In Christ, we saw last week, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in Christ, you have his perfect righteousness. So there is no condemnation for you, no judgment, no punishment anymore for your sin because Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin. This is the great gift of salvation that we celebrate at Christmas. It's a gift. God sends his son to rescue us from sin and death and hell. The question is, how do you receive this great gift of salvation? And the answer is by faith, faith in Christ. But that's more than just giving mental assent to the facts. It's about trust. It's about depending, trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. It's depending on Jesus Christ alone to save you. You're not saved by your good works. It's nothing that you do. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, when you heard that gospel and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13. Right at that moment, what does it mean that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit? The seal was a mark of identification placed on a document or a, a contract. It was made from, from wax and it was impressed with a signet ring. And that seal was a mark of authenticity, ownership, and protection. The seal showed that the document was genuine. It also showed who it belonged to. And the seal protected it by preventing tampering. It's like a brand on cattle that shows who they belong to and protects them from being stolen. Or like a brand name or trademark that identifies a product. Fake Lego doesn't have the official Lego trademark on them. The seal removes doubt. That's the purpose of being sealed by the Spirit. The seal distinguishes what is true and certain from what is false. Only our seal isn't visible. It's internal. We're sealed with the Spirit. Now, this seal then does three things. First it, first, it authenticates. It confirms us as genuine believers. Second, it marks us as God's own possession, giving us assurance that we belong to God. And third, it protects. As Paul is gonna say in Ephesians 4.30, it is the spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, because this seal identifies us as God's belonging to him, it protects us from the wrath to come and secures our entrance to heaven. So in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, it, you know, it tells the story of a man named Christian who travels from the city of destruction to celestial city, which is heaven. And when Christian comes to the cross, which is called the place of deliverance, he's carrying this big burden. And when he gets to the cross, his burdens are removed. And that symbolizes that his sins have been forgiven. His burdens actually roll down the hill into the tomb, never to be seen again. And we read, then Christian was glad and relieved. And he said with a joyful heart, he has given me rest from my sorrow and life through his death. And he stood a while in wonder at the cross, weeping at what Christ had done. 
And then he's visited by these three shining ones, these angels, which is depicted here on the screen. The first declares that his sins have been forgiven. The second took his rags and clothed him with rich garments, a picture of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And the third, quote, set a mark on his forehead and gave him a document with a seal on it. He instructed Christian to look at the document as he continued on his way and to present it, deliver it at the celestial gate. There's complete salvation in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. We're clothed with the pure white robes of righteousness in Christ, and we're given or sealed with uh, the Spirit for salvation. This little document, it's not a copy of the Bible. He already had that. This represents the seal of the Spirit, and he's supposed to look at it as, it he, look at it as he travels. Why? because it's a source of assurance and comfort for him. Well, after many dangerous toils and snares, when we get to the end of the book, Christian finally arrives at the gates of Celestial City, and he has to present. He's called on to present this certificate that promised him entry. The king inspects it and then invites him into eternal happiness. Now, You might be asking yourself, well, how do I know if I've been sealed with the Spirit? Here are a few marks of the Spirit. First is the fruit of the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, the fruit that is produced is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. That's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. These are the kinds of things. Now, you don't produce these things. As you walk by the Spirit, as you are led in the truth and you obey God, The Spirit produces these things in your life. Related to this is a second sign or mark, the fight of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. One way that you know that you belong to God as a child of God is that you're led by the Spirit of God, and here, You are led by the Spirit to put sin to death in your life. That means that we're not perfect. We're still going to struggle with sin on this side of heaven. But if you find this fight within you, this fight against the flesh, then take comfort and thank God because the Spirit is known by His fight as well as His fruit. Third is the witness of the Spirit. We have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8, 15, and 16. There's this inner witness that you are God's child, that you belong to God, that God is your father. Now, the strength of this witness might vary. For some people, it rings out loud and clear. I am Christ's. God is my father. They go through life with a great assurance. But for others, it's like a feeble whisper. Yet even so, if you ask any believer, is God your father? He will say, yes, he is indeed. Yet the fourth is the most important one of all. It's the one that's given in our text faith in Christ. We might call this the faith given by the Spirit. John Calvin said this, how do we know that God has elected us before the creation of the world? By believing in Jesus Christ. Whosoever then believes is thereby assured that God has worked in him. And faith is, as it were, the duplicate copy that God gives us of the original of our adoption. I love this image. God has our adoption papers in heaven. 
He's written our names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And our faith is like the carbon copy of the original certificate of adoption. Our faith is the evidence of the Spirit's work in our life. We would not believe in Jesus Christ without God's prior work through the Spirit. So do you want to know if you're God's child with an heir, with this inheritance? Ask yourself, have I repented and believed in Jesus? Ask yourself, do I know Christ? Do I love him? Am I trusting him? Is my desire, however feeble, to honor him? The Spirit's work is to exalt Jesus Christ, to call people to believe in Jesus, to enable them to follow Jesus. What shows the the Spirit's work in your life is not a focus on the Spirit, but a focus on Jesus Christ, a faith and trust in his work, a love for his person, a passion for his kingdom. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me, John 16, 14. The spirit is like a spotlight that shines on Jesus. You see these spotlights up here on the side of the room? The purpose of those spotlights is not to point to themselves, but to point to another. That's how the spirit works. If this cross represents Jesus and this flashlight represents the spirit, This is what the Spirit's work does. The Spirit shines on Jesus. The Spirit points us to Jesus, exalts Jesus. So if you want evidence of the Spirit, don't look for the flashlight. Look to see if Jesus Christ is being exalted, if Jesus is your focus, your hope, your love, your trust. Now, all of this, I want to say, is never perfectly. None of it ever is perfect. Amen, somebody. It's never perfectly, but it's true. It's truly. You would like it to be more. Amen? Raise your hand if you would like it to be more. Even that, that desire is evidence of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't come from you. That comes from the Spirit. And you're sealed with the Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You know, human, it's human nature to break promises. Politicians break promises. Advertisers break promises. Employers and workers, preachers and church members, parents and children, husbands and wives, friends and family, all make and fail to keep promises, even if they're well-intentioned. However, God is not like man. He always keeps his word. And God means to show us here that he will not break his promise. He gives us the spirit as a guarantee to reassure us that his promise of salvation is certain. God's never gonna disinherit his children and no unforeseen circumstance will prevent him from fulfilling his purpose. You do not seal yourself. God does. You do not guarantee your inheritance, but God does. The Spirit's the guarantee of our inheritance, it says. This is a business term. It refers to a down payment or a deposit or a pledge. It's a portion of the purchase price that's uh, given as a promise that the rest of the payment is coming. It's like the down payment that we make on a house. It's the guarantee that the rest is going to be paid. The Spirit is God's down payment of our inheritance. It's the guarantee that he's going to bring us into the full possession of it. 
But this is what I love. As the down payment, the Spirit is actually the first installment of our inheritance. The Spirit's the beginning experience of what is promised to us. He's a foretaste of the glory that is to come. So oftentimes, the heirs of a great fortune, they're given a generous allowance to live on from this vast wealth that's being held in store for them. Similar to this, we've been given the Spirit as a generous allowance, a portion of our inheritance that's held in store for us, and we live on Him. So as one author put it, Christians are not orphans, but children and heirs with a vast fortune held in trust from which we draw even now by faith, growing increasingly in the riches of grace and in the knowledge of God. The Spirit gives us assurance because he's the down payment that guarantees that all is going to be ours in due course. But more than this, The Spirit gives us a taste of the blessings that are going to be ours, namely the presence of God and the joy and peace and love of God that's been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. Now, what can we do in light of all of this? What can we do but give thanks and praise to God for this great assurance? That's the purpose. Praise God for sealing you with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your glorious inheritance. Brothers and sisters, you will make it to the end, and you will acquire possession of your inheritance. How do you know? Two reasons. God determined it, and the Spirit who seals you guarantees it. This gives you assurance in the face of doubt and in the face of difficulty that you, play, that you face in this life, and it gives you reason to praise God. It's all for the praise of His glory. See, we've seen in this doxology that all of our spiritual blessings begin with the purpose of God They're purchased by Jesus' blood on the cross and they're preserved by the Spirit who seals us and guarantees us until we acquire it. The point is that salvation from start to finish is God's grace. All of it, from beginning to end, is God's grace. And therefore, it's all for the praise of his glory. We see it twice in this text today. So give thanks and praise to God for your spiritual blessings in Christ. But let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you today. God, we we get so focused on the things that are in front of us, Lord, the things of earth. We pray and ask, God, that you'd lift our gaze to heaven. He'd lift our gaze to this glorious inheritance that you have in store for us. God, when our hearts doubt, God, I pray that you would help us to feel the comfort and assurance that you've determined this for us, that you've given us this seal, the spirit as a guarantee, and God, that our, our hearts would be assured and comforted in it. Lord, no matter what we face, Lord, help us to keep this in front of us. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for this gift of the Spirit, this great blessing of our inheritance. God, would you you help us to give thanks and praise, not just today, but all through this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.